1: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each week I queen out on all of the acting choices, micro-moments, and magic in the minutia that make a scene great. My name is Colin Drucker, and your name is spelled just as it sounds. And we have, we have a lot to cover today. I mean, this is part three of Cherishing Valerie— we have a lot to cover. I don't want to waste our time on things like air fryers or Amazon Prime trailers and things like that, though I do want to talk about one thing before we do, as they say, dive into the details. Um, first things first, how are you? How was your week starting? How was your weekend or whatever day it is that you're listening to this? Um, I hope the answer is positive. Um, and if it's not, I hope that that changes. Uh, All's well with me as I'm recording this. It is Labor Day weekend. It is, you know, the unofficial end of summer, and I am looking forward to the end of the classic podcaster cliche of recording in the summer and thus having to turn off all of your fans and air conditioners and suffer through the entire episode. Um, I suppose I could have a fan on in the background. Some of us, I think, just accept that. Like, all right, well, listen... If you, wanna, if you want an episode of a podcast and I don't have a studio that's climate controlled, I guess you're going to have to endure a little bit of background hum. Um, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to sweat profusely and, um, you know, figure it out afterwards. <laughs> anyway, uh, the one thing I wanted to talk about before we kind of dive into part three is um, one of the movies that I've put on the schedule for our October kind of, you know, Spooky in the details. I haven't I haven't figured out like a punny name for that. I I should have really planned that out. Um, And now I'm trying to think of one while I'm talking right now. So it's just it's like stop stop. Um, It'll come to me anyway. uh, One of the movies that's on the schedule is this movie from 1971 called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And I've seen this movie before. It's kind of always been in the back of my mind as like this. I've I've always remembered it as like, yeah, it's like a weird fucking movie. And like, it's very surreal and it feels really off kilter. And like the lead actress is like giving a really kind of strange performance that I think when I first saw it, I just like did not get. It's kind of like the first time I saw Rosemary's Baby. I did not understand what Ruth Gordon was doing. It just didn't, it didn't sound right to me because I didn't realize how right it was. You know what I mean? Um, and and it's definitely the same with Let's scare Jessica to death. Um, I ended up I bought it and I watched it this weekend because so I was like, yeah, let's let's remember this movie. And oh my god, if Let's scare Jessica to death is not the quintessential in the details horror movie, it's I I I am so excited to do that episode whenever that happens, probably early in the month. It's what I like about it, of course, is it's not overly, it's not really violent. You know, there's no like you know, m- mean, like, jump scares, like, I don't need a movie to fuck with me, you know what I mean? Um, there's great music, there's really kooky cinematography, it it all moves a little slow, but it's creepy from, like, the first minute, so you're just kind of, like, marinating in creepiness, you know? And, of course, there is the lead actress, Zora Lambert, who I... I'm just like fascinated by and i just want to queen out on it now but then i won't be able to queen out on the, on the episode but uh just to kind of give you maybe some things to warm up on um first of all see let's scare jessica to death which um the title i mean the title sounds like um did anyone ever read that book killing mr griffin by lois duncan remember that one uh uh Lois Duncan. Now that's an episode of In the Details. I fucking love Lois Duncan. Almost as much as I love Beatrice Strait. Um, But there's that sense of like people plotting against someone. And that's not necessarily the story in Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which is what the title sounds like. It's... um in a way, it's almost, like, better the, the less you know going in. Um, it's it's best to just kind of experience what the movie's doing. And Zora Lampert, who is—she's been in stuff. I think she was in Splendor in the Grass. She was in um, a couple other things here and there, but never really, like, totally took off. Um, she was in The Exorcist 3, which I haven't seen, but, like, everybody talks about it. Like, it's the scariest fucking thing. I know there's that whole scene with the, with the nurse in the hospital. I know. Um and so, uh, she is just a such an interesting actress. I was going to say she's a kook, but I don't even know if that's what it is. It's such a nuanced performance. There's so many like interesting choices that she's making, and the way that she's doing lines, or the way that she's interpreting the emotions of a moment. And you know, Jessica's meant to be a little off kilter the whole time, anyway. And it's it's just perfect. I I I just can't wait to just dive into that. But the other thing if you want to kind of, you know, warm up before the episode is A, see the movie and B, you should go look up Zora Lambert's Goya commercials. They're so good. They're so, like. They're, and if you don't, it's fine. We're going to talk about them on the episode, but they're just, they are something. They don't, they'll make commercials like this anymore. Um, and then I was like, well, how do I tie, you know, is there any connection to Zora Lambert and like the other, in the details movies, the kind of, you know, uh, the, the alumni of, of movies that I've been talking about. And, of course, there is because Zora Lampert is in the 1984 movie Teachers, which co-stars, of course, who should be an Oscar nominee, but only is in my heart, Jo Beth Williams. Um, and I think, oh, I think Lee Grant is in it, and she is a, she's been nominated for Best Supporting Actress at least. At least once, probably more than once. Oh yeah, no, no, she won for Shampoo. She was nominated for Voyage of the Damned, so she's in this. Laura Dern is in it. Ugh, Morgan Freeman's in it. Crispin Glover's in it. Uh Nick nolte star is in it. Judd Hirsch, whose name will come up later in this episode. Um so yeah, I mean Richard Mulligan, you know. Hey. Uh so I just wanted to mention that. I just I I think you know, we're, we're not even close to Halloween season, but we're close enough to me. Uh, and I think that if you are one of those people who likes to kind of, you know, watch scary movies around Halloween, I don't know, is that like a thing? I guess it is. I like to do that as a kid. Um, I just think that like, if you haven't seen Let's Scare Jessica to Death, this is like such a perfect movie to, to add to the list. But it's not a movie to watch while you're playing on your phone. Like, I think you should like put your phone away and like get sucked in. Um, anyway. Anyway, that's my PSA on Let's Care Jessica to Death. Um, And I think that's that's all we're going to kind of talk about before we get to the heart of the matter, before we get to what we all showed up here for, which is, of course, part three of Cherishing Valerie. And this is really where we're going to wrap up our exploration of who Valerie cherishes and then what she means to me. And so... Without further ado, let's do that Mystery Science Theater 3000 race to the theater so that we can dive in and celebrate the nuances in the details of the comeback with part three of Cherishing Valerie. If the comeback is considered to be a brutally honest examination of network television and the Hollywood system at large, then it's impossible to ignore the influence of men in Valerie's professional life. I think we as a general public have a very different understanding now of gender politics and gender dynamics in the entertainment industry than we did in 2005. We know now more than ever the ways that masculine energy can turn toxic in an audition, a rehearsal, a script meeting, even a casual interaction at the craft service table. If the comeback were made today, I think it would be impossible to not speak to this dynamic in some way or another. And in a way, I'd kind of be fascinated to see Valerie Cherish's take on the Me Too movement. The comeback never specifically highlights these issues, at least not in terms of harassment or assault, but we certainly see hints of it in the clear objectification of Juna and Shane, as well as some questionable commentary from Polly G and Tom on their looks. There is, however, another very subtle narrative weaved into the first season. How Valerie navigates and interacts with men, and specifically with straight men. Her relationship with gay men is a whole different bag of beans, and we'll get to that. There are very few mature, functioning adult men surrounding Valerie, at least at work. I'm glad that there are guys like Jimmy or Eddie, the stage manager, men who both recognize how ridiculous Valerie can be, but don't let that be an excuse to disregard her humanity. At worst, we see them humor her, but they never humiliate her. Some of that, of course, comes from working so long in this business, working with so many difficult actors and big personalities and crazy demands. Over time, they've learned to navigate these waters without capsizing entirely. The writer's room, meanwhile, is another story. With the exception of poor Gigi, the writers are a pack of juvenile man boys who see Valerie as the thorn in room and side The entire show had to be reworked because of her. Because she was thoroughly miscast as sexy architect Laney in the original iteration, but couldn't be replaced because the comeback was attached to Room and Board. And to be fair, she is kind of the thorn in Room and Board's side. Polly G's grudge against Valerie develops not because he despises her personally, at least, you know, not at first, but because she is an obstacle in his career. He once won an Emmy for writing The Simpsons, and now he has to figure out how to write this washed-up sitcom actress into his show, which is becoming less and less of his show. This doesn't, of course, excuse how he treats her throughout season one, but there is a, a glimmer of humanity in recognizing that he's on the same journey to fame she is, and the intersection of those journeys is essentially an inevitable collision. Tom, meanwhile, falls somewhere between the likes of Jimmy and Polly. He thinks she's a fool, another over-the-top actress with her prayer hands and her chintzy first-show gifts, but he's always scrambling to cover that up with feigned interest and a polite smile. The men in Valerie's life, the masculine energy that surrounds her, is what triggers some of her biggest displays of strength and professionalism, and also a real demand for dignity. And not just the dignity of delusion, real dignity, like real respect. Of course, I can't talk about Valerie standing up for herself without mentioning the moment in the Upfronts episode when Valerie thinks the president of the network has forgotten to, to announce her name when introducing the cast of Room and Board. Waiting in the wings, she's been stepping on the stage manager's toes the entire time with her entourage of cameras and crew and Mickey and has officially come all of this way for nothing. She didn't get to go out with the cast the night before, and now she doesn't get to go out on stage with them. The stage manager needs them out of his way, and it's his masculine aggression that brings out a ferocity that Valerie has clearly needed to harness at choice moments in her career.
0: What's happening? See you in that's not I future. don't understand. I just don't understand. It's a mistake. Go out I'm going to run this. out there, Mickey. I hey, you two have to go. I've got other shows coming through. No, no, no. See, I'm with that show there.
1: That show's done now. Get your fucking cameras out of my fucking way.
0: All right, that's it. You want to throw the fucks around? I'll throw the fucks around. All right, I have two shows on this network, and he forgot to fucking introduce me. I don't need you pushing me off the stage, okay? They've already done it. Thank you. Thank
1: you. I do love that she seems to realize by the end of her tangent that she hasn't thrown any fucks around, so she needs to work one in, but it's clear-eyed Valerie saying, I have two shows on this network. She isn't wrong. She should absolutely be out there. Of course this all ends up being one more test in the reality competition show that is the comeback. Just how much can Valerie bear? It's not until she's decided to leave in tears that Mickey hears the network president giving her a special introduction, looping in the comeback, and Valerie sheepishly pulls it together to collect her prize for this week's humiliation. I think that moment, especially coming so early in the season, gives us a taste of what happens when Valerie gets pushed too far. It's not until she's dressed up like a cupcake, though, that we really see what happens— when Valerie fights back. But first, let's talk about Valerie's relationship with Tom. (laughs) I've always had a bit of a crush on Tom, if I'm being honest. Uh, the hats, the, the track jackets, the smirks, the gentleness, Tom is squarely my type. Tom Peterman, who is played by Robert Bagnell, feels surprisingly complex and human. He's He's sweet and frustrating and even a little heartbreaking. He's flawed, but also forgivable because he's been handed the dubious and ever-expanding task of catering to Valerie's needs as an actress. At the same time, he's bound to Pauly G's side. He is the beta to Paulie's alpha-awfulness. Minus the homoerotic undertones, he is the smithers to Pauly's Mr. Burns. But there's a significant tide shift in Tom and Valerie's relationship, and it's done so well that it's one of my favorite through lines to look for whenever I'm rewatching season one. Maybe it's because I like seeing people be nice to Valerie, because I want her to find an ally and Gigi ain't cutting it. I also think it's because both Tom and the audience see a positive side to Valerie the actress. Through Tom's compassion, which I think is real and without an agenda, this really graceful professional emerges in Val. This all comes out after the late-night writer's room incident. Tom is the first one to spot Valerie and crew outside while Polly simulates sex with Milo as Valerie on the table. The oh-shit look on Tom's face when he sees Valerie isn't just about getting caught in the act. I think it's the start of a reality check of sorts. It makes me think of Sue Snell and Carrie, At the beginning of the movie, Sue is caught up in the mob of girls bullying Carrie White in the locker room, throwing tampons at her and chanting, Plug it up! There's something seductive about that, because when you're a part of the mob, it means you're safe from being the target. There's this great micro-moment in Carrie when the teacher, Miss Collins, catches them in the act, and she grabs Sue bewildered by her you know mere involvement in this and we see the wild-eyed enthusiasm just begin to fade in Sue's face as she watches Miss Collins try to comfort Carrie she starts to realize that this is a sort of bad dream she's been participating in she's suddenly been shaken awake and i think the same thing happens for tom i i applaud valerie in this moment though for completing her mission and going into that room, delivering those cookies, and thanking each of those assholes by name. Well, yeah, there's always one she forgets, right? And I think that is significant, her refusal to catch any of them in the act, to acknowledge what they all know she saw. In a way, it's like another example of the dignity of delusion, preserving her dignity and even theirs by not calling out the uncomfortable truth. Tom is the one left to navigate that interaction, Everyone goes into a cowed silence. Gigi, of course, starts reaching for the cookies. Pauly G does nothing because he's garbage. As they're leaving, Valerie plays it all off to Jane as just blowing off steam.
0: Do you want to talk about what you just saw? Um, In the, the writer's room? The, yeah. Uh, Jane, that was nothing. It really was. Just, you know, writers blowing off steam. You know. So you don't take that personally? Oh, please. No. No, but it's a comedy show. You know, that's, you know, part of the creative process. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you don't see that as a personal attack? (laughs) Jane, you really have to lighten up. Okay? Attack of what? Attack of the giggles? (laughs) Got me. No. No, no, no. It's late. We should all go home, I think. Okay, everyone drive. Drive safe.
1: But it's the focus on Mickey here that tells us everything. He loves her too much to challenge her, but he's watching her like a car wreck smoldering on the highway. She is on fire and insisting it's just a little warm in here. It's not until Valerie is more or less off camera that Mickey asks her if she's okay, and we know just from a quick sniffle that she's not. The following night, Tom catches her before she leaves the studio. He oversells a laugh at one of her jokes, and we know he's nervous and trying to navigate uncertain terrain as he apologizes for what happened.
0: Hey, Val. Val. Tom, hey, hi. Hey. Hi. Oh, that was such a good show tonight. Oh, wasn't it fun? That yeah. tag was so funny. It, it, oh, it, thank it, you. It, oh. Thank you. Well, hopefully a big monster track won't roll through the screen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? <It's> me. <laughs> through the screen. Yeah. Oh, man, seriously. Listen, I I just
1: wanted to apologize to you about the other night. Oh. Sometimes in the writer's room, things kind of get a little bit out of control.
0: Yeah. No, no apology necessary. You know, I'm not one of those actors who has no sense of humor, you know, runs off to call a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, we were just blowing off some steam
0: scenes. that's what I've been telling anyone who'll listen yeah you know yeah. sure
1: yeah but it it was just stupid and it was it was just really immature
0: no it's really okay and so I, yeah. it's really okay you know I get it you know when I was on I met I didn't care what the writers did at night you know as mm-hmm. long as there was a great script waiting for me in the morning you know that's all that matters all right okay all right so I'll, I'll see you well, thanks for chasing okay. me down.
1: Yeah. yeah. Something happens when she says, I didn't care what happened in that writer's room, so long as there was a great script waiting for me in the morning. There's a tiny but super important nuance here. She's, of course, talking about her halcyon days at I'm It, but it's not in that desperate way she's done it in the past to prove her relevance or experience. It's just truth. The distinction is all in how she says it. It means something that at the end of the sentence she doesn't do her usual desperately enthusiastic inflection with wide eyes watching to see how the line lands. She instead sort of distractedly fishes in her pocketbook for her keys, and it does two things. It signals that Valerie isn't doing the usual dance she does with Tom, the two of them taking turns smoothing things over and insisting everything is fine. She's already subtly reassured him she's not going to sue them or make a scene, which I think she suspects is his initial concern and and the whole reason this apology is happening. But we see that that isn't his concern. It's like that doesn't quite address his need for absolution in the moment. When she says the line about the great script, she truly sounds like a veteran actress with an understanding, not just of the creative process, but of the social and professional dynamics of making a sitcom. When she looks down, it gives us this moment alone with Tom. I I think we see him realize that she's not so bad after all. It was a lot easier to make fun of her and look down on her when he just saw her as the fool, but he's really seeing a relatable, respectable human side to her here. If we're gonna compare it to Carrie again, I think Tom is kinda like Tommy Ross, Sue's boyfriend, who has realized on this forced prom date with Carrie that she's actually very sweet. She means no harm, and his kindness towards her doesn't have to just be pity. I don't think Tom wrote Valerie an episode out of pity either. I think he felt it was the right thing to do, a, a course correction of sorts, away from Paulie's marginalization of Aunt Sassy in every script. I think Paulie probably told him it was a bad idea, that the network wasn't going to be interested in seeing an entire episode dedicated to her sex life. Aunt Sassy was no Blanche Devereaux. It was essentially going to be like watching Mrs. Roper try to get laid. And from what we see in rehearsal, the script is, you know, no funnier than any of the others, but Aunt Sassy is given an opportunity to make the joke instead of be the butt of one. And everyone is having a good time on set, Everyone's laughing, Paulie is noticeably absent, and so too is the toxicity of his energy. I think even Tom and the other writers appreciate it, maybe even without even realizing that's why today feels different. I think that Tom even develops a brief crush on Valerie, or at least finds himself somewhat attracted to her. We see it during the casting meeting with Sharon for the role of Big Dick Perkins on the Sassy episode. Sharon has assembled a list of largely no-name actors, and any of the names on the list, which I figured out from careful pausing and screenshots, were Ted Danson, Diedrich Bader, and Judd Hirsch, mentioned earlier, and all are either out of town or not interested. Valerie then tosses out Tom Selleck's name, as if that's a reasonable request. Yeah,
0: Just to point you in the right direction there, um, you know, Harry Hamlin, uh, Tom Selleck, Jane, how great would it be to have Tom Selleck on the comeback, huh? Oh, yeah, okay, so Sharon, let's get Tom Selleck. Great, yeah. Yeah, Val, I don't, I don't think we can get Tom Selleck. Well, no, of course we can, not without a personal call, but I can handle that. Oh, you know Tom Selleck? Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. Uh... Yeah, I did a, a Magnum P.I. back when I was just starting out, played his godchild. <laughs> <laughs> a time ago. I know, oh, wait, no, wait, I'm wrong, my bad. That's wrong. It's I was I played a teen hooker on Magnum P.I. I I played uh, Remington Steele's godchild. It was the same year, so. Wait, you you were on Remington Steele and Magnum P.I. the same year? Yeah. That is that's crazy shit. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so you know, I still keep in touch with Tom, Mm -hmm. so maybe I could pull in a favor, give him a call. Okay. Yeah. Why not?
1: Great. I imagine Tom grew up watching and loving Remington Steele and Magnum P.I., and the fact that both shows are a casual part of Valerie's past give her a cool factor he did not expect. It goes largely untelegraphed, but Tom is definitely staring at Valerie's cleavage for a few seconds after that. It's not exactly the sweetness of Tommy Ross and Carrie White in a spinning embrace at the prom— We are seeing Tom validate her and objectify her in the same moment, but it's definitely a shift in Tom's feelings about Valerie, at least for a little while. I think Tom really gets his hand slapped, though, when the network shuts down the show and they have to scrap the Aunt Sassy episode. Pauly says, told ya, at one point, and in a way, I mean, he was right all along he knows who they're writing the show for and what they're tuning in for, and neither the audience nor the network cares about giving Aunt Sassy her own episode because Tom feels bad or because Valerie's not that insufferable after all. I don't think Tom turns on Valerie at this point, but he disconnects again and goes back to towing the company line with Polly G. And of course he then discovers he's developed an ulcer, no surprise, which leaves no buffer no matter how neutral at this point, between Valerie and Pauly G. This is reminiscent uh, of when horror movies and, and mysteries kill off the like, supportive friend about an hour into the movie, like just as the main character needs them the most, just as things are getting serious. Tom is essentially killed off. And while Valerie still has allies on set, she has Mickey and Patrick, the costumer, and Juna and Jimmy and even Jane in a different way, none of them are able to intervene in a real way. This, of course, leads us to what may be the most iconic moment in season one of The Comeback, the infamous cupcake scene, where Valerie finally confronts Paulie G and, dressed as a giant cupcake, ends up losing it and punching him in the stomach and vomiting ensues from both parties. <laughs> it's a brilliant scene, and the build-up to it throughout the episode and really the whole season is so methodically done that when she finally whirls around and socks him in the gut, it's, it's so exhilarating and cathartic. The fact that he throws up and then she does, and the yelling and the chaos of the camera, the, the cuts to Jane watching in awe, feeling surely both a sense of pride for Valerie and knowing they just got such good footage for the show. And then, of course, zooming on in on the, on the vomit puddles at the end, this totally meta moment of the comeback, giving the masses exactly what they want and maybe reminding us, the assumed discerning audience of the comeback, that this is what the general public goes wild for. Close-ups of vomit. People don't just want to see you eat the bowl of beetles, they want to see you then throw them back up. Valerie ultimately discovers this by the end of season one, the extremes one needs to go to really resonate with the general public now and ironically it's the most gratifying moment for all of us watching we've been tricked in a way so that our favorite part is when they both throw up (laughs) of course for those of us watching with real emotional investment it's also when the villain finally gets what's coming to him and when valerie finally loses control paulie's thinly veiled despise of valerie is fully revealed all this time Valerie has been desperate to get Polly G to like her, or at least stop hating her. She's just needed his approval, which, of course, Jimmy eventually explains to her is blood from a stone.
0: Look, Tom's gone this whole week. He has an ulcer. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. So, it's just Polly G. And Wagner. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, pretty much on my own. You know, just wanted to be good, show Polly it's okay, I can be. You know, I can be funny. I can be good, you know. Blood from a stone. What? Blood from a stone. Yeah. Incapable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. Well, still, I want it to be good, so I'd love to. You know, the audience will laugh, and you'll go to that place you go. You'll be fine. You think? You're a giant cupcake. That's true.
1: Valerie's relationship with Pauly is masochistic in a way. This desperate search for water in a well that has proven its dryness time and time again. But, well, <laughs> Valerie is kind of a masochist. When, when they're in New York for the upfronts after Valerie loses the rest of the cast and decides to spend the night alone in her room, she starts filming a video diary when there's a knock at the door. It's important to remember that this technically turns into an off-camera moment in that she forgets to be on. She opens the door to find Polly G standing there, like, Leatherface, summoned by a note she's left him to discuss what she thinks she should say at the Upfronts tomorrow as part of her big return to the network. And Polly G just points a finger gun at her and shoots. The shot is, of course, set up so that we're seeing Valerie in a bureau mirror. She kind of blinks and says, Okay. Then, that happened. I think she realizes in this moment that she'll probably never get through to the guy, and yet she believes he holds the key to something she wants. Fame. He is an abusive source to feed her fame addiction. He can write her into more scenes, give her better lines, more involvement than just being a fool in a pastel running suit. Valerie is an actor who wants to be involved. Every actor does. She's the kind of actor who says things like, I get to have this great little moment where, <laughs> that, that no one is going to notice except her and, and maybe Mickey and, and me because, you know, I'm looking for those nuances and the details, which is, you know, of course, the name of this podcast. Um, she'll, she'll make a feast out of scraps with those little moments, those, those tags at the end of the episode, for example. But Pauly could give her a B story, you know? Beyond that, Polly is also just someone who doesn't like Valerie, who, unlike Mickey, doesn't think she's enough. We see in episode four when she stops him when he's leaving the studio, beg him not to hate her because they had to change her line about the eating eating the puppies.
0: Polly, Polly, listen. Just wanted to say thank you so much for changing that line. You know, it's just, and thinking on your feet like that, that was, you know, and uh, very fun to do. So, just thank you so much. Really, really enjoy. <clears throat> you know, don't hate me. You can't hate me. One joke, that's not fair. You know, it's not who I am. That's not who I am. You know, I'm a team player, and I'm a hard worker. I'm the one who buys gifts for all the crew. You know, that's who I am. That's who I am. So, all right. All right, have a good night.
1: I don't think she can bear knowing that he just isn't buying it. She's always looking around to make sure everyone likes her, willfully ignoring the blank stares and furrowed brows she often gets in response, and she's always spotting Paulie G frowning at her. While Valerie is aware from early on that he doesn't like her, it's really not until he hits her rawest nerves that she can no longer keep doing this masochistic dance with him. The cupcake scene is, of course, one of those moments. She only puts herself through take after take of falling eventually onto her back because she sees him not responding positively in any way. Again, Jimmy has told her that it is a useless effort and he has never steered her wrong. She doesn't always see that, of course, but Jimmy has probably seen the likes of Polly a dozen times over, if not more, in his career, and he's seen the likes of Valerie just as much. He knows it's oil and water, in theory and in practice. The scene, of course, is one of Valerie's greatest humiliation challenges in, once again, the reality competition show that is The Comeback. She is risking serious injury, as so many reality show contestants do, to win what she thinks she wants, which is at least a smile from Paulie. For him to say in one way or another that at least in this moment, he thinks she's good enough. Valerie doesn't throw the proverbial fucks around in this moment until Paulie manages to poke at what might be really at the root of her insecurity. The root of her pain her physical inability to be just like everyone else, to be included, to be accepted. He trivializes the monkey on her back, the rod in her back, and I think something takes over. It reminds me so much, of course, of the punch scene in Rachel Getting Married, which I queened out on in the Rachel Getting Nuanced episode. There is that that pause after Abby, played by Deborah Winger, loses her shit on Anne Hathaway's Kim about her involvement in... Kim's little brother's death. Kim pushes her away, and Abby has that pause. Something possesses her. I think we've all had those moments. They are irrational, but honest. They shoot from the hip, but they come from the heart. Valerie turns, swallowing a quick, resigned, all right, before it's like she suddenly hears Mark threatening earlier to come to the studio and punch Polly in the gut and in a split second realizes just how fucking good that would feel. Again, it's just so gratifying whenever Valerie fights back. It's a shame Jimmy wasn't there to see it. But Eddie is right there, and Mickey's still there, Uh, and these are people who have seen both sides. Eddie heard Pauly and Milo laughing about Valerie's scoliosis when she got caught at the metal detector earlier. And while we don't get to see Mickey and Valerie afterward, I understand that it might have diffused the moment a little, but it would have been so cool to see some off-camera version of Valerie not knowing she's miked or being filmed immediately reacting or Mickey assuring her he had it come in red. Of course, the other nerve Polly hits for Valerie is by making her feel not included. We've talked about this throughout Cherishing Valerie, the hunger for inclusion in the Hollywood system and inclusion anywhere, the ways she feels like an outsider, the ways she is. So when she finds out in Palm Springs that Polly didn't invite her to his party, it brings her right back to every other time, even as a child, that she wasn't included. I imagine there were a lot of birthday parties a young Valerie wasn't invited to a lot of valentines she didn't get in school, certainly some dances she never attended. Those wounds, they don't just heal on their own. They create grooves in the road for future experiences to fall into and retread. Of course, she doesn't want to process those feelings with Mark and Don and Donna, who have all heard her phone call with Juna and know that she's hurt. Par for the course in the comeback, they honor the dignity of her delusion and Donna suggests they all get drunk instead. For someone like Valerie, getting drunk is a truth serum. I think alcohol creates delusion for a lot of people, but for Valerie, who is already deluded, it does quite the opposite. Alone with just Jane and the crew, she decides to call Polly G. As I mentioned in last week's episode, Jane gets involved here without question and finds his number in her phone when Valerie can't because she wants Valerie to confront Paulie and it'll be great for the show. The Valerie that emerges in this voicemail is kind of fascinating.
0: No, no, where are you? What are you doing? I wanna call him. Oh, I can't find him. I wanna call Polly G. I'll do it. Okay. Look under F for fatty. (laughs) Did you hear that? It's oh. okay. <laughs> This is Polly This is Valerie, Valerie Cherish. And word on the street is that you had a party. Fanny had a party? Fanny had a party and nobody came. Uh, no, 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 no problem is that everybody came. And I wasn't invited. And that hurts my feelings. Okay, and you need to know that. Cause I'm not going to keep it inside and get cancer.
1: There is a, like a simplicity to this. The, the sentence, I'm not going to keep it inside and get cancer, is slightly ridiculous. It's a, it's a drunken oversimplification, but isn't it also true? Isn't there some truth to the way that unspoken truths fester? We carry stress in, in parts of our bodies. That energy has to go somewhere. It looks for a way out, and when it can't find that, it becomes a squatter in your body. I mean, just just look what happens eventually to Tom, right? Who is doing the same thing Valerie is, smoothing over the cracks of life, and along the way develops an ulcer. And not saying how she feels is cancerous to her life. It turns situations malignant. It allows conflicts to metastasize. I think so much of the bullying from Polly goes on because in some way, Valerie is allowing it. By not stopping him in his tracks, by not pulling out the same no-nonsense attitude she did with the stage manager at the upfronts, she allows him to let his disdain for her shine through more and more, almost daring her to acknowledge it. Which, of course, is what leads him to getting punched. The original concept of Mark Berman, affectionately known as Marky Mark, was that he'd be the older guy Valerie married who couldn't really care one way or the other about all of this. The marriage was supposed to be essentially one more sad delusion in Valerie's life. I'm glad they made this change because the original version of Mark feels kind of obvious and hardly as interesting as the Mark in the show who's actually very attracted to Valerie and seems to genuinely love her. Damien Young is so perfect as Mark. The role might as well have been written for him, the way that Mickey and Jane were written for Robert Michael Morris and Laura Silverman. He plays a successful lawyer, probably in his mid-40s, living in Beverly Hills with a 12-year-old daughter, Francesca, who spends most of her time with his ex-wife, who he describes as...
0: Uh, Mimi is um, my ex-wife. She runs his uh, Midnight Sun 24-hour...
1: tanning so salon. I start liking Mark as soon as he says that line. Damien Young finds all of these small moments to make Mark relatable for uh, for us to see that he's not uh, he's not just consumed with work. He's not just indulging in Valerie's silly whims because it gets her out of his hair. He's actually, along with Jane, another proxy for us as the audience into the world of The Comeback. Because he doesn't work in Hollywood and met Valerie while she was out of work— I read an interview with Lisa Kudrow where she said they had been married for four years at this point. Um, None of this exploitation circus is normalized for him. We're reminded how ridiculous this all is, the whole concept of the comeback, through Mark's reactions. But, you know, once again, it would be, you know— less nuanced, if you will, if Mark was just left to, you know, occasionally break the fourth wall with different versions of disbelief. Mark plays such an important role in helping us understand who the real Valerie is. We've talked a lot about the different people in her life and the version of Valerie they bring out, but the -the behind-the-scenes truest version of Val is the one with Mark. It's not wildly different than on-camera, Valerie. It's it's like the volume has been dialed back to a six and we're no longer hearing any feedback. We see it in the first episode when she's filming her personal diary in the bathroom and Mark comes in to uh, use the facilities. <laughs> I'm sure there's something deliberate about the fact that around Valerie, Mark poops with the door open. Uh, personally... I don't need to see that, but um, I suppose, like, you know, the intimacy of that is suggesting something, right? Valerie thinks she's turned off the camera, giving us our first real glimpse of off-camera Valerie. Mark uh, finishes up and is at the sink testing the water pressure while Valerie stares into the mirror and subtly pulls back the skin at her temple to see how she'd look with an eye lift. glimmer in Valerie's eyes when he says, you'll be great. And especially when he says, you always are. This moment fulfills her and reassures her immediately that she is enough. And Mark really means it. We see another version of this moment in episode six after the first episode of Room and Board airs and Valerie's tag gets overrun by a NASCAR ad. She leaves the room and in, again, an off-camera moment, or so she thinks, she's melting down about this being the premiere and people not seeing how good she was. Mark insists she was great and he hugs her and we know that he's able to bring her back to Earth. But the moment she realizes the camera has caught this interaction, she cuts it short and goes into the bathroom to you know, freshen up. The scene ends with Mark realizing why she pulled away. The cameras were there, capturing a real moment Capturing her being weak. She's safe to be weak, to be scared, to be insecure with Mark. He won't shame her. Mark thinks Valerie doing the comeback is kind of ridiculous, but he doesn't think she is. As she gets back into the the drag of celebrity, he does see less and less of the woman he met and fell in love with, but he never fully loses sight of her, at least not in season one. Season two is an entirely new chapter in the Mark and Valerie story, and one so much deeper than what we see in the first season, but I think that depth is really earned. In season one, Mark is very much caught off guard. He keeps adjusting to this as if he will eventually adjust into a position that allows Valerie's fame addiction to take over their lives and still leave him comfortable. By Palm Springs, I think he's realized that that just isn't possible when they can't play music because the rights will cost too much, or when the Lincoln rep keeps insisting he call it The Navigator. But he starts to get a taste of it, too, when they're on the golf course and he messes up because Valerie's phone rings and he asks for essentially a second take. For the most part, Mark is exceedingly patient with her, and having grown quite attached to Valerie, especially working on this project, I am very grateful for that. As I said, I like seeing people be nice to Valerie. I like that Mark finds Valerie's impression of the beady beady boys funny when, you know, to the rest of us, it's kind of terrible and, of course, vaguely offensive. He genuinely finds her funny. He comes to the taping of the show and watches with pride and, and amusement. When she skips out on dinner with him and out-of-town business partners to rehearse her lines while Mickey henna's her hair, and then is able to change those plans to go to the Viper Room, but still can't join Mark for dinner, he calls out the hypocrisy, but he doesn't punish her for it. This, I think, is less of a dignity of delusion thing, and more of a pick-your-battles kind of thing. Mark is a lawyer. He could win this conversation if he wanted to, but he agrees to compromise. Mark of course gets drunk that night and gets a little handsy first with Valerie who rejects him because as she says I'm working and then with his coworker while you know dirty dancing <laughs> as Valerie would say I do not endorse it but in a way I understand it I don't think he had any idea that their fairly healthy sex life would get essentially shut down once the comeback started on-camera Valerie is like an old Hollywood movie star here again. She isn't seen being overtly sexual. With an overhead camera installed in their bedroom, that means she isn't being seen overtly sexual in the bedroom. Mark has had to tolerate having sex in the bathroom instead, and not shower sex, but you know, navigating cold porcelain and tile in hiding like two horny janitor's. When Valerie tries to spice things up for the cameras in episode five, but still wants to keep it PG, which again feels very post-Hays Code old Hollywood, he's frustrated with her. He calls her out, as he says, giving him blue balls for ratings, but he never outright turns on her. And what's the conflict really, right? You know, Mark just wants to make love to his wife the way he used to. He just wants to be her husband. He wants to experience their real marriage and not the one she's producing for the show. Mark's desire for Valerie, not just sexually but as his wife, is such a rich demonstration of how she is enough. Mickey may have to tell Valerie that often, but Mark shows it in the way that he chooses her over and over, even when she doesn't choose him. He accepts the compromise of meeting her at the Viper Room because He still wants to see her that night. He accepts that Valerie gave his ticket to the People's Choice Awards to Gigi because, you know, she's fat and none of the other writers like her, as Valerie explains. When she leaves the treadmill on in episode 10 in her sudden demonstration of physical fitness, Mark steps on it and falls, breaking three fingers. I think being high on Percocet after that dictates most of his reaction to his unfortunate intersection with Valerie's journey to fame. I do love in that episode when Jane opens the jar of peppers for him. You know, talk about moments of Jane's involvement. Jane and Mark have a, a funny little relationship. At one point, he offers her some of the paper he's reading. He asks her to dance at the Viper Room when Valerie rejects him. And, and in this moment where she's opening the jar for him, he has this, like, just really amused look on his face that I don't think is just the Percocet. I think Jane is the closest thing to reality for Mark sometimes. At the end of season one, Mark witnesses Valerie get everything she wants. She gets fame, she gets another classic Leno moment, and despite insisting the night before that she had quit the comeback and would no longer be under the watchful spider eyes of Jane Benson, she also finds out that they've been picked up for a second season. It's worth mentioning here because I have to mention it somewhere— but I love when Jane and Valerie hug after getting picked up. I think Valerie is, is just as happy in that moment to be picked up as she is about getting a hug from Jane. She has that thing where she, she looks at the camera and goes, see that? Cracked right open. you know? Like it's like, finally. Um, it, and I get it. It's like after all they've been through together, I think Valerie needed that hug in like so many ways. But the season ends with Valerie leaving the Tonight Show studios and being greeted by a throng of audience members waving the barf bags with her face on it they all got as a gag during the show. Without a moment of self-awareness, Valerie only sees this as a bunch of people clamoring for her autograph. She doesn't do the mental math that she's literally endorsing her face on a barf bag, her image associated with comedic vomit, her source of fame as that Entertainment Weekly story warned her all those weeks ago, is rooted in exploitation. Jane watches from the sidelines full of pride. I think she's just happy to see Valerie get some love from fans, having seen her beg and claw for it for 20 weeks of filming. And Mickey watches Valerie the same way he did back in 1991. He just sees the TV star he loves getting the fame she so deeply craves and he believes she deserves. But Mark... Is watching all of this not cautiously. He's not starting to sniff out the flaws in the situation. He's becoming starkly aware of who Valerie has become, of what fame has mutated her into. He's been seeing it all this time, but this moment, after the humiliating first episode of The Comeback and her subsequent meltdown after. Going with Valerie to Jane's apartment to confront her and quit the show, after finally believing that enough really was enough, he then watches just how this drug of fame works on her. How it anesthetizes her. The amnesia it gives her. Michael Patrick King talked about that in terms of the first episode, uh, which we talked about in part one, when her it wall is destroyed but room and board gets picked up. Part of Valerie's reward each week on this so-called reality competition show that is The Comeback is the gift of amnesia. It's like that whole thing about women forgetting the true pain of childbirth. It's an actual function of the brain that allows humans to continue procreating. One can remember intellectually the pain of childbirth, but the razor-sharp edge of it is dulled so that you'll still go through it all again. The Tonight Show was her final challenge. Not quitting was her final challenge. The moment the audience was cheering for her after that boxing bit with Jay was the moment Valerie either rejected the whole circus entirely and stopped chasing the fame or learned to embrace what she was rejecting in order to have what she wanted most. And her reward? The comeback gets picked up for a second season. Because unlike a reality competition show, there is no actual final challenge in that there is no $100,000. There is no crown. There's just more of the same and likely worse. Valerie even says at one point, what am I going to do next year? Explode? This is just the beginning of the humiliation. And I think as Mark watches her gleefully signing barf bags and embracing the very thing that finally crossed the line just last night, he's the one to realize that. This is just the beginning for her, and for him. This is an interesting emotional cliffhanger that gets explored more fully in season two, with Mark eventually moving out, to say nothing of their amazing confrontation in a restaurant parking lot, uh, which we'll just have to talk about when we do season two. We really do see in the second season what's been so carefully laid out in season one. Mark, like Tom, you know, is a human being with flaws and limits. He's not eternally patient and understanding. And all of those little compromises he's had to make do add up. Valerie can push him too far. And she does. But what we, of course, discover by the end of season two is that Mark is one of the few examples of reality in reality star Valerie Cherish's life. His love for her is real and what sustains her and keeps her grounded. Her fame addiction comes with high highs and low lows like every addiction, but Mark is a steady, reliable source of validation and appreciation in Valerie's life. I think it's really important that season two ends with Valerie surrounded by Mickey and Mark, the two people in her life who, without fail, never let her forget that she's enough. Much like Dorothy Gale and those ruby red slippers, she had everything she needed the whole time. So much of cherishing Valerie has been, of course, about trying to understand who Valerie is and how you have to catch glimpses of her because Valerie's truth is a moving target. There is one moment, however, when we see it with devastating clarity We talked earlier about the infamous cupcake scene of episode 12, but it's what happens earlier that day that I think is probably my personal favorite moment of the season. After Juna gets threatening letters from a stalker, extra security is set up at the studio, including metal detectors. When Valerie sets the detector off, she's almost forced to reveal in front of everyone that she has this metal rod in her back uh, to correct the scoliosis that she had as a kid. Now, I can't mention the scene and not at least mention Mickey, struggling to get all of his rings off. And then looking at the camera and saying, shouldn't have had all that bacon. And then putting his finger in his mouth to help moisten it and slide it off. It's... <laughs> the the moments that I, I didn't think I could love Mickey more, I just grow to love Mickey more. And that's one of them. <laughs> anyway, they... They go to Valerie's dressing room where Jane asks her to talk about what just happened. This is again one of those scenes that really you you absolutely have to see to navigate the face journey. While Valerie is talking, uh, the clip is actually on YouTube. I'll I'll tweet a link to it if you don't have access to the comeback. Otherwise, um, it's it's just it's amazing to watch the the, the slow dissolve in her face. It's. It's like that, the part of her, the, the version of Valerie that explains everything away is losing steam, is running out of battery, and stalling out, which, you know, of course lets the truth come through.
0: Do you want to talk about what just happened at the metal detector? Oh, that was no big deal. No. Yeah. You know, you know, you know those girls in junior high school who have the body casts on or the back brace? That was me. <laughs> so, you know, it happened. Done. Yeah. Aren't you worried about your fall? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. No, yeah, have a rod in my back, but you know, doesn't limit me much. You know, always been very active, very physical. You know, in fact, you know, even then I was on the field hockey team. Yeah, so, but that whole year, of course, I was in the body cast, so, you know, couldn't play. But uh, still go to every practice, went to every practice. You know, dressed in the uniform for every game, right? And, uh, you know, still part of it. You know, ran around handing out towels and, you know, getting everyone water. Cheering them on during the games, you know, yeah. Showed up every day, so it was, it was fun. Wouldn't let me be in the picture, but. I don't know what this is. (laughs) All of a sudden, woo! I'm gonna have to. I'm fine. I don't know what this is.
1: Every single time I watch this scene, I get immediately choked up when she says, you know, wouldn't let me be in the picture. I mean, God, I'm, like, I'm like getting chills right now just saying it. It's just, it's the depth of honesty in that moment and the, the nuance of how she says picture. Valerie's inflections code so much. And this moment is devoid of all of her performative diction. It's something she didn't mean to say, didn't even think of, you know? It was, it was waiting at the bottom of the story like some prize in a cereal box, just waiting for her to unearth it. When you see the wounded child in someone, you're seeing who they are. You're seeing the part of themselves that both acts out and hides, the part of them that both desires attention and hopes to not be seen. The, you know, unexamined and unhealed hurts of our childhood dictate so much of what we do as adults. And while this is our only real glance at Valerie's childhood, you know, we know that she got started acting very young because she was 17 when she was on Magnum P.I. Uh, You know, still, like, this one glance really tells us almost everything we need to know. When the tears surprise her, is a moment that has likely happened to anyone who's done therapy. When you're <laughs> when you're telling one story and suddenly realize you're actually telling an entirely different story, a much deeper one you didn't realize you needed, you know, to be telling. She, of course, you know, gets up and goes into the bathroom. Not sure what this is, is, is kind of the classic response in this moment to be some kind of observer of the emotional moment and not the participant. And this is where we get a shot of Jane with tears in her eyes in the mirror. I had alluded to this moment last week as one where Jane gets involved with Valerie. Um, I think this emotional involvement is really important. Again, Jane, as I've said before, is seeing all of the same footage we are. She's seeing the same story unfold. And so for this revelation to come out now, for Valerie to open up to her like this after all these weeks, I think Jane finally sees the missing piece that makes Valerie click together. I think that's part of the reason she starts distancing herself in the last episode, she not only knows you know, what the final product of the comeback looks like, she knows that behind the caricature of Valerie created in the editing room is this young girl in a body cast trying to find a place on the field hockey team for herself, trying to fit in despite how much she stood out, how essentially not good enough she was. Not being allowed to be in the picture is the wound that gets reopened when Paulie G doesn't invite her to his party when she's stuck in the background of the promo shots for Room and Board, when the cast goes to dinner without her in New York, when she realizes her reality show is too boring. All of it says you don't really fit in. And so you are relegated to being unseen. It makes perfect sense in a way that Valerie would go on to pursue a career that is designed to make her seen, that gives her a role, an opportunity to be recognized and appreciated, to, to go from not even being allowed to be in the team picture to making it to the covers of magazines. Is it really that surprising that Valerie became addicted to that fame? Can you really blame her? She found something that was an immediate and potent salve for the wound. It worked so well, she got a People's Choice Award out of it. Which is, you know, kind of silly, you know, it's, it's kind of a silly award to brag about, right? But to Valerie, the notion that it's from the people really does mean everything. Getting the People's Choice Award, getting the magazine covers and the mentions in TV Guide or Entertainment Weekly held the promise of making up for her exclusion in the team photo. Who needs to be in that silly picture when you're on the cover of Red Book, right? That logic doesn't really work, of course, and the illogics of that are part of what drives the comeback. This idea that she can fill the void and heal the wound with just a different form of attention or you know, one that far outsizes the attention and recognition she craved in junior high, but will never be enough, of course. The Valerie at the end of season two, who was willing to walk out of the Golden Globes and break the entire paradigm of the comeback, might start to realize that. After she and Mark leave the hospital that night, they certainly go to the Golden Globes parties where I hope she's showered with praise and adoration and is included in lots of pictures. But perhaps now there's a little perspective. Perhaps the drug of fame is a little less effective now, knowing her best friend is okay and her husband is at her side. Perhaps Valerie doesn't crave fame the way she used to because it hardly compares to what's real in her life. If we're going to talk about Valerie's relationship to men, then we can't not talk about how she relates to and connects with gay men. Valerie, Valerie in the world of the comeback is something of a minor gay icon. You know, she's, she's appreciated for her campy charm as Becky and I'm It, for summoning the nostalgia of an early 90s sitcom, of an era, of a heyday, if you will. As a gay man, I get it. Need I remind you?
0: He really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. I think
1: that's, that's probably one of my favorite Valerie quotes. Not only because she's talking about nuance, she's, you know, she's having you know, a little celebration of nuance, if you will, in the details, you know, the name of this podcast. But she's bizarrely self-aware in that moment. She's, she's totally spot on. To really get Valerie, you do have to see the nuances. Now, I don't want to get, I don't want to get exclusive. You know, obviously Lisa Kudrow is a straight woman and she gets Valerie better than anyone. And I know lots of women who just get her. Probably, you know, in some ways that I don't even fully appreciate, right? So I think this whole idea of getting Valerie in reality actually speaks more to the feeling of being an outsider, which, you know, of course many gay men know well, but so do just as many people who don't identify as either, you know? It's that thing that bonds Valerie to Mickey. I think, and this is such an insanely broad statement here, but I think what draws in a lot of people who deeply love the comeback and Valerie cherish is that much to our disbelief, we grow to really identify with her. We know what it feels like to not fit in. We know what it feels like to not be appreciated or understood at so many different ages, we have realized we are not someone or something that we used to be. How many of us have had our own version of not being allowed to be in the picture? How many of us have had our own Pauly G? Have encountered a you know similar humiliation as Valerie did when she visited the writer's room that night? How many of us needed to sometimes be reminded that we are enough? I, I certainly get also the more general gay appeal of Valerie. I think gay men often appreciate women existing out loud with exclamation points, underlines, and you know, bolded as necessary, because it is unbridled feminine expression when so many of us have, have had to keep our feminine tendencies hidden, you know, for so many years. We recognize in Valerie both her boldness and her tendency to closet to hide her vulnerable, true self. And how often she's doing just a terrible job of hiding it. Like so many of us who have been so unconvincing in the illusion of heterosexuality, the performance of acceptable masculinity at different points in our lives. I think the reason I'm so drawn to wanting to know who the real Valerie is, in wanting to see those hints is that I know what it takes to maintain an illusion under duress. To try and get everyone to believe I'm a version of myself that I'm just not. I still do it in different ways in my life, but I've got years of practice trying to hide my sexuality and pretend I was straight. Your dog with dementia could tell I was gay, but I couldn't bear to break out of my own paradigm, the way Valerie does at the end of season two, and exist in reality. Paulie G reminds me of so many boys in junior high and high school who looked at me the same way he looks at Valerie, with the same mix of disregard and disgust. And how much I desperately wanted them to just like me, because it was easier than facing their disdain every day and not being able to change it. And one day... In eighth grade, after getting teased by three other classmates, I got on the school bus visibly on edge. I remember saying, do not fuck with me today to the other kids I knew from our daily ride home, but to a 12 or 13 year old boy, that's an invitation to do just that. So when one of them started laughing and whispering something to his friend without even thinking, I leapt up and beat the shit out of him. I don't think I've ever done that before. And I, I got into fights with my older brother when I was younger, but this was different. I had never attacked someone like this before. I remember thinking, am I even doing this right? I imagine Valerie had never punched someone before either, before the day she hit Pauly G. But I have to imagine it was somewhat rewarding for her too. Not to hurt someone, not to be violent, But to finally tell this person who's been bullying her on no uncertain terms that she demands to be treated with respect. I think, ultimately, what I love most about Valerie Cherish is the caveat that Michael Patrick King pointed out. This won't kill her. It's easy to see that as a reason not to pity her a reason not to see her as a victim. You know, nothing that happens here is the end for Valerie. And, you know, part of that is certainly the reward of amnesia with each challenge she successfully overcomes, or at least endures long enough to earn a prize. But the other way of looking at that is Valerie's uncrushable resolve, her unbreakable spirit, her willingness to get back up and keep trying every time the world knocks her down every time it seems Valerie gets taken down by life, she still manages to find a way to come back. Oh my God, you guys that was part three the final part of cherishing valerie certainly in terms of season one as i've said multiple times there's so much about season two to talk about i totally want to do this again and dive back into the world of valerie cherish and and who we meet again in you know 2014 um but this has been uh this has just been so much fun i have been wanting to do this forever i feel like I got so much out of this, so if you got anything out of it, that's great too. I'd love to hear about it. I'd love for you to drop me an email, you know, at in the pod at gmail.com. You could add me on Twitter and you could drop me a message there or a tweet. That's at Colin Drucker. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube. I'm trying to, you know, keep up with that as well. So you get, you're just getting me at all different angles. Um, but that you can also find me as, uh, Colin, as Colin Drucker, that's who I am, on YouTube. Uh, and of course, you probably already know that you can find me on All Right Mary every week talking about Drag Race. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the comeback. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Cherishing Valerie. I'd also love for you to share those thoughts on iTunes, hopefully as a five-star rated review uh, with lots of nice things that tell other people, oh yeah, of the gazillion podcasts out there, this is totally one worth your time, talent, and energy. Um, So with that being said, I think that is all I have for you this week. I can't thank you enough for tuning in or whatever you do on podcasts to listen and going with me on this celebration of Valerie Cherish. This celebration of all of her acting choices, all of her micro moments, and all of her nuances in the details. Thank you so much. See you later. Bye.